We're teaching our children that they are accidents of nature, okay? We're teaching them they have no value in our schools. How dare they teach a young child that his value is tied only to his color, the color of his skin, his, his socioeconomic status, his height, his weight. That's what they're teaching in our schools today. My guest today is Sam Sorbo. There isn't much that Sam can't do. She started out studying biomedical engineering at Duke University and speaks five languages. She left school to pursue a career as a model and then moved into acting. She played Serena on the TV series Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. The show ran for six seasons between 95 and 1999. And get this, it became one of the highest rated syndicated television shows in the world at that time. Sam fell in love with the leading man, Kevin Sorbo, who played Hercules. And while they were engaged, Kevin suffered a series of three strokes that left him nearly paralyzed and partially blind. Kevin credits Sam's tough love and encouragement that pulled him through. Sam and Kevin wrote a book, True Faith, Embracing Adversity to Live in God's Light, describing how they got through these tough times. Sam is also the host of The Sam Sorbo Show, a nationally syndicated radio show. She recently wrote a book, There Are Kids, An Inspirational Journey from Self-Doubter to Homeschool Advocate. I recently sat down with Sam to find out where she found her strength during her husband's illness to nurse him back to health. And we also got to talk about why she feels our children deserve better than to be institutionalized in an educational system developed during the industrial age. All right, Sam, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really, really greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Sam, first of all, how did you get the name Sam? I was the fourth of four girls, and uh, my mother named me Sandra, and then immediately decided that that sounded affected. And so I went through a couple of iterations, but she almost immediately started calling me Sam. She, I, I'm not quite sure why, maybe because they wanted a boy. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I went through a couple iterations. And then when I started modeling, there was already a Sandy and already a Sandra. And so I said, okay, I'll go with my nickname. It was either that or Pumpkinhead. And I think I chose well. You, cho you chose wisely. Good move. So you went to school. You grew up in Pittsburgh, right? You went to school in Pittsburgh, go to high school. And then where do you go? Uh, no, well, at the end of high school for my senior year, I was a foreign exchange student. So I went to Sweden. So yeah, I brought the Svenska flytande. Nice. And uh, came back and went to college um, and then decided that I really like learning languages. So I took a year off from college and went to Paris and modeled and learned French. I was and, modeling. Uh, Is it, what, I, I know just from some, uh, a friend of mine who I worked out with a couple of years ago, workout partner. He was a male model. This guy was gorgeous. And my kids always said that I had a man crush on him, which maybe was true. No, it was true. So anyway, he was a really swell guy. Makes and, a big man to admit that. <laughs> uh, no, I'm telling you, I like when he'd call like, hi, they knew I was on the phone with him. You know, he was a really, he's a really good guy from Australia. I don't want to mention his name, but he's a pretty famous guy. And um, he told me, first of all, for a man, modeling business is a cool business. Uh, it's great. Yeah, you get a lot of, um, you know, you get a lot of attention and it's really super. But for a woman, he says, I would never let my daughter be a model. Why is that? Why would he say something like that? What was your experiences on that? Is that so even close? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary business. Um, there's there are great upsides and there are huge downsides. And so, well, I understand him saying that. I I would choose to think that I would raise my daughter with the correct morals and just foundational tenets to be able to withstand the pressures. But there are great pressures um, within the industry, and I I did see it happen. Uh, and I was very very lucky or blessed, however you want to look at it. Um, uh, I was on a film shoot in the Seychelles Islands, which is uh, islands on the eastern, off the eastern coast of Africa. Uh, absolutely beautiful. And the um, the editor who was running the shoot, she was the she was the head honcho. She was in charge. She was an older woman, and she was having a five day migraine or whatever, and she was very um, unpleasant. And so at one point the hairdresser said to me, don't drink the punch. I was like, what? He said, don't drink the punch. I, I, we, we want to get the stylist eye. So we spike the punch with ecstasy. But I know you, you don't do drugs. So don't drink it. Really? And I just thought that's amazing. And um, later on, I, I look back on that and I go, wow, I either had a protecting angel or I gave off a vibe that said, don't mess with me because I'm not doing that stuff. Um, so if you have a young woman who is easily influenced, then yeah, the, the business will be a minefield and she will probably end up losing parts of herself. Um, luckily, I, that never happened to me. I, I was very strong-willed and, and, and I'll be honest, I, I didn't have a lot of respect for the business when I started. Um, I grew to respect it a little bit later. I didn't realize uh, what I had when I had it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so later on, I went, oh, you know, if you approach it as a business, uh, there's there's a lot to be, there's a lot you can do with that. Cool. So you, you, so you, went, to, you went to Duke University, right? Mm -hmm. You're pretty smart. That's cool. So now you went to Duke University for biomedical engineering, and then you end up being a model? How did that work out? So I quit modeling to go to university. And while I was at university, uh, I realized that with modeling, I could have everything except biomedical engineering. But if I went to the university, I could have just biomedical engineering, basically, because biomedical engineering is what? It's, it's a pathway to medical school to residency, to specialization. It's like a 12 year you know, program where you basically have blinders on and that's all you do. And so it was sort of this proposition of, do I want, do I want just that or everything else plus a very lucrative career? And so I then left university and went back to modeling uh, at that point. And um, my Dean used to write to me and say, you know, a biomedical engineering degree is a really good thing to have just in K or, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But um, yeah, that was one of those decisions. It was really a binary choice. After modeling, you went into acting. How did that, how did that, how did you, how did that transpire from you doing modeling, you're going all around the world, you're learning a whole bunch of languages, you're having a great time making bucks. How does you, how do you slide into acting? Well, it's a fairly natural progression. You know, when you're when you're modeling, you get sent on TV commercials and eventually the TV commercials are requiring you to put a little bit more effort into it and act it and stuff. And so 
Um, I'll be honest, I had always wanted to act. I wanted to act in high school and I was tall, which didn't get me the good parts because the boys were short. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they were very discouraging. Nobody succeeds as an actress. Nobody succeeds who just decides to go and act, which is kind of funny because the girl who, one of the girls who graduated me, who graduated a few years ahead of me at my high school is actually a very successful actress in Hollywood right now. So, um, but of course I didn't have that to, I didn't have that example to go on. And so I was discouraged away from it. And, you know, you have to go to college and you have to get a degree and you have to get a career. And then you can consider the fun stuff, the family, marriage, kids, uh, acting, the hobby stuff. Um, And that's sort of the environment that I grew up in. So it wasn't really a respected thing, which is why when I started modeling, I didn't really respect it, which is silly because if you can make a lot of money doing something, you know, as, as long as it's um, ethical, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that should be respected. We live, we live in this kind of economy. So you went to acting, you liked it, you did well in it. I know you are on a couple of, well, some of the things I don't, one site, one thing I saw was Chicago Hope. Yeah. Did you, what was your steady gig? What was your steady? Uh, um, in that was the, that was my first real steady gig. I did uh, 10 episodes of Chicago Hope, a half season about. Um, and, but at the time, you know, I mean, I started out doing my, my very first movie was with, um, oh my gosh, Morgan Freeman, uh, F. Murray Abraham, uh, Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis. It was at Melanie Griffith. It was a huge movie. I, I had a tiny little role. Uh, I bas- basically got cut out. Which movie? Is um, this? What's the name of the movie? Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, wow, wow, wow. So a couple A-listers and you hobnobbing. Got it. Yeah. And they cut then you when out. I moved to when I moved to L.A., my first role was opposite Brad Pitt. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who wasn't Brad Pitt at the time. Like, you, you know, he had yet to be discovered. Um, but, uh, he taught me a great acting lesson. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, when I, when I started acting, uh, you know, it's slow going at first, but I was still modeling. The modeling was paying me very well. Pretty soon I had to turn down modeling jobs because of acting jobs. And that's when I, that's when, you know, you're, you've made the transition, you know, to go whole hog into acting, you're having a great career. And then what happens? How do you end up in New Zealand? Oh, well, I got, I got cast on a, a show in New Zealand called Hercules. It was the number one show in the world at the time, although I didn't really know that. I just knew that it was a popular show, and I got a role, and it was a free trip to New Zealand, and what's not to love? Um, and in fact, really, what's not to love? Because I went down there and immediately fell in love with the star of the show, Hercules. Who became your husband, huh? He did. He couldn't resist me, I like to say. Well, great, great job. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a really great love story that you can read in. Actually, I think it's in both books. It's in his first book, True Strength, and then our second book was um, our 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 book together was True Faith that that uh, came out earlier this year, and uh, it's a pretty cool story about. It you know I I believe that certain things are meant to be, and it, it just was like fireworks right away. It was just a, a beautiful thing. Um, I'd been praying about it and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get married. I wanted to find the man. 
Um, and I wasn't finding him in LA. And uh, I was, I was struggling with that because I, I knew what I wanted and I couldn't figure it out. And I finally sent a prayer up to God and I said, okay, God, I get it. It's, I'm going to have to compromise, but, but tell me what the compromise is because I, because I can't figure it out. Is he going to be short? Is he going to be insecure? Is he going to be stupid? Like what, what's the, what's the compromise God? And I'll make it. I probably, I, I'll do it, whatever it is. And then I went down and I met this guy who was like the man of my dreams. He was like incredible and so good looking and so smart and so talented and so successful. And like, just, you know, if you had a list, it just check, 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 check. And um, so I was just counting my lucky stars. I was like, this is, and he loved me. Like, (laughs) add that to the mix. And, um, we dated and we got engaged and I was on cloud nine and I was trying to figure out how to make my career work because I was a career woman. I was raised to get a career, um, how to make the career work with the, with the marriage. And we set a date for our wedding and, um, we were making plans and I was still trying to figure out how to juggle that because he lived in New Zealand and I lived in LA and so for the, for the future, the near future, anyway, I would have to be going back and forth and what would that look like? And what if I had a call back and all of that stuff? And then, um, he had three strokes and ended up in intensive care. What do you mean? Three, three, and, strokes, uh, in one, three strokes in one shot, three strokes in one shot. Whoa, whoa. He had an aneurysm in his shoulder. So one second, one second, and, everything, everything's going great. And then tell me, how, how does, how do you get into the stroke? What do you, He's just walking or talking or act average day, and then he just strokes? He had had pain down his left arm for some time. Uh, you know, he's an athlete, so it was sort of like, first you shrug it off, and then you see some doctors, and the doctors tell you, uh, you have an ulna nerve that um, that could be causing the problem, and they didn't think it was anything. And I mean, if you see photos of him from from that time, he looks like the picture of health. Uh, and they believed they believed the the look. They really he had one doctor tell him that he thought, and mind you, he's going a hundred miles an hour because he's promoting his new movie and the show's a hit and he's traveling and doing publicity and doing all this stuff. And so he had one doctor come to the hotel and say, Well, I think it's circulatory. Here's some beta blockers. And we looked at that and we were kind of like, well, we weren't into drugs. So it was sort of like, really, you're just going to give him some drugs, but not really know what the issue was. And the guy sounded like kind of a, just a loser. Like, what does he know? Everyone else is saying, don't worry about it. And he says, it's something serious with your heart or whatever. Like, what's that about? And by the way, his name was Dr. Dye. D-Y-E or D-I-E? How do you spell his name? I don't remember, but it wasn't D-I-E. All right, I hope not. Still, it was it. really not, 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 inspi- not, not inspiring confidence. Anyway, um, Kevin eventually went and saw a chiropractor because the arm was so painful. How old, how old is Kevin? Just because he, sees, he would see this chiropractor every so often in L.A. And he'd how been how seeing old is Kevin at this time? 36? 36-year-old guy. Part of his career, Hercules, well built. I saw a picture of him. I know my kids used to watch the show because I told them I'm interviewing oh. you, and they I, I I never watched Hercules, but they said they watched it and they know about. It. They go, oh, uh, as 
Sorbo, is it related to Kevin? I go, I think that's, this is his wife. So they said, Dad, the show was great. So they used to watch it. I think it was in the 90s, right? Oh, it's still airing. I don't think they're you watching it now. They're liberal if they're watching it, it now. 90s, okay, yeah. late 90s. I know they're watching it then. So he's 36 years old, just got married. Now he goes to a no, chiropractor. No. You're not married yet? Nope. Okay, so he goes to the chiropractor. What happens? Chiropractor We're says, engaged. And he decides to go to see a chiropractor because it's just really bugging him, you know, that shoulder and the pain and the pain's gradually gotten worse and the chiropractor finds a lump and he starts palpitating the lump and, uh, or palpating the lump, I suppose is the word. Um, and it's soft, but it doesn't move. And the chiropractor's like, I don't know what's going on here. And then the chiropractor does the thing that in eight years he's never done because he knows Kevin doesn't like it. And while Kevin's on the table, Kevin hears a voice that says, don't let him crack your neck. And he starts arguing with the voice because the chiropractor's never in eight years cracked his neck and the chiropractor cracks his neck. And the neck crack forced the clots that had been forming here to go upstream. Now, mind you, at the time when we were diagnosing all of this and trying to figure it out, we did not, we did not know that. And there's, there was some hard science saying that that couldn't possibly happen, but there were about half the doctors who did believe that that's what happened. But in any case, when the clots went upstream, they got into the brain. And so within 15 minutes, Kevin was in his car driving at that point, he suffered his first stroke um, or two. And he called me and he said, I don't know what just happened. So the whole world went haywire. It's like an electrical storm in my brain and I can't figure it out. And I feel like I'm in an aquarium and I'm not seeing straight. I mean, I see okay, but there's something that's seriously wrong and I can't figure it out. And I offered to come pick him up and he said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better, it's better. Um, luckily he'd been in traffic, you know, LA traffic, so slow moving. So he could pull over to call me and then he got back on the road and he drove to my apartment and he was supposed to go do a, an interview um, and the publicist pressured him into going despite his migraine and feeling really bad. So he actually did an interview after suffering his first strokes. And then the next day he stroked right in front of me and slurred his speech. And I said, we're going to the hospital now. And he thought that he was dying, uh, which he was to a certain degree. I mean, they saved his life. Um, but, um, but back to the reason that I was telling this story, uh, I was faced with a choice, another binary choice, my career or my marriage. Hang on a second. Hang on yeah. a second. So he, he <laughs> got to get this story. 36 year old guy, third stroke. You get him, you take him to the hospital. You take him to the hospital and you're thinking, yeah. what, it's, is something serious? And I got to tell you, a 230 pound guy leaning on me as we walk into the hospital, that was, that was a tough, <laughs> and he's thinking, but God, I, I thought I was going to be able to have a family. I, this doesn't seem fair. So you know, and, this, you uh, know, this is something really serious at this point, right? You have an inkling. Yeah. And yeah. he knows something's really bad happening. Oh yeah. Right. They get to the hospital. They take them, and what happens then? 
Well, I had been a volunteer at that hospital for uh, several years. And so when I brought him in, um, I knew everybody. And uh, we also called his GP who told them that he was coming in. So they brought him back to a room um, and told, told them that he was stroking. They brought him back to a room and they started just a barrage of tests on him. And luckily I was very much at home in that environment, mm -hmm. even though it was the love of my life who was going through this. Um, so I managed to navigate that with him. Um, they admitted him. Uh, they continued to do the tests the following day. They still didn't know what was going on. I believe that they didn't believe me when I told them that he was stroking um, because by the time we got to the hospital, his speech had resolved. And so he was speaking okay, but I told them that he, he wasn't actually speaking to his ability prior to the stroke. So he was still a little slurry, but, you, but the normal person couldn't hear it in him. Um, and it took until the follow, I think it was the following afternoon they did a Doppler on his arm, which, which was testing the circulation patterns. And I remember the gal saying, cause I was sitting there with her. She said, okay, well that seems fine. You know what? They haven't asked for it, but I'm going to do the other side. Just, just, uh, just for kicks and giggles. Um, so you have two main arteries that feed the, the, the body is actually constructed in a very binary way. And so if one, one system fails, there's a backup system. Um, and so you have two main arteries. And the main artery seemed to be fine, but the secondary artery, the one that she went to next, which they hadn't asked her to, to check, mm. was completely occluded. There was no pulse whatsoever. And that was what was precipitating. So he had cold hands, he had loss of circulation in his fingers, they were turning blue. And so that's what finally keyed everybody in. It is circulatory. Dr. Dye was right, although not with the, necessarily with the beta blockers, but it was circulatory. And, and then the, it just, then you have the cascade of all of the, the uh, conclusions that you can draw. And so they immediately set him up and sent him to intensive care and um, started dealing with that. You're engaged, and this guy is really, really having a really tough time here. And so what's going through your head? I had faith. I don't know why I had faith. You had faith what? Uh, that everything was going to be okay, or it, this yes. is the way it should be, and we're going to get through this, even though he's lying on the hospital bed, it's looking really terrible? Yes. I, had, I had one crisis of faith. When they brought him back from one surgery and he um, started to shake violently and the nurse, male nurse, screamed, we got to get him back to the OR or we're going to lose him. That was, um, that was my one crisis. And I ran to the bank of phones and I called the doctor, his GP, who I trusted who was magnificent through all of this, I have to say. And I, and I told him, and he just reassured me and said, Sam, he's in the best care there. Uh, they know what they're doing, you know, whatever. Um, and then I realized that there was nothing that he could do and that it really was in God's hands more, more than anything else. And so I just basically hit my knees and started praying. In the hospital, uh, right there and then. Oh, yeah. 
And by the time I walked back to the intensive care room, he had stabilized. They told me that they gave him Benadryl. I don't know if that's true. Um, but what I but what I realized much later was that he had a panic and anxiety attack that was, you know, the 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 debilitating kind where you just start shaking violently, your adrenaline gets pumped through you. And I will say that um, nobody told us that that's what was happening and that that would continue to happen for years um, because he had suffered a traumatic brain injury. And that is a typical response of the brain is to not be able to regulate the adrenaline like it used mm -hmm. to. Um, it took us a, it took us months to figure that out. How old are you now? How old are you when this is all happening? I was very young. Very young. <laughs> I'm you're not like telling. A, you're, you're, let's say, I'm making up a number. You're younger than him, and you're this young lady. I'm substantially younger than him. Substantially younger. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and your whole life, everything's going great. You kept falling forward, and life's just absolutely phenomenal. You went modeling, and then you went acting. You married the leading man, and here you are in a hospital in a hospital room on your knees, and yet, and yet, and it looks like it could be almost be over. And and you, what pulled you through? When you say faith, what pulled you through? You just knew that it was going to be over, or that it was going to be good, and everything was going to work out. So, I I don't have a good explanation for that. Um, I had found the man of my dreams, and there was no way that I was going to lose him. Now that's silly. Don't be ridiculous. This is what I prayed about. This is what I envisioned for myself. He's perfect. I'm going to get that. And it'll be, and it's all going to work. I, I can't explain it, but I will say this. When he was in intensive care, I landed the best job, the best acting job ever. And the reason I say that is because it was so easy. It was uh, not to get it, but I got it, right? But mm -hmm. it was... It's such it would have been such an easy thing to do. It was a national network television commercial. So it's a short shoot, three days, um, for ice cream, my favorite thing ever. Like, like if if I had to pick what kind of commercial would I want to do, it would be ice cream. Doesn't get better than that. Uh, what it does no, seriously. And and they'd fly me to New York, first class, all expenses paid. Like, and then the money for that is outrageous because national network spot and it, and it, it'll just continue to air. And I mean, it was just the, the be all and end all. And I walked into intensive care and I asked Kevin if he wanted me to not go. And he said, yes, I want you not to go because I was literally all he had. He, he had, had no family, so, no, no family, no anybody was there. No. Um, part of that's my fault. His parents offered to come out. And I said, please don't, because I didn't think that I could handle it all. That was a mistake. I, sh I should have had them come out and just figured it out. Wait, what do you mean? You said to them, don't come because why? I didn't think that I could handle them and everything at the hospital at the same time. What do you I mean? just thought. What was the problem? And, well, first of all, I thought it was all going to work out. He's the strongest man in the world. And Hercules. this will... Yeah, this will resolve itself. Um, and 
you know, he was talking. Yeah, he was stuck in intensive care and he wasn't allowed to move because he was going to bleed out because they were filling him with blood thinners out the wazoo and stuff. But um, they were, how do I, I don't, they weren't terribly savvy. And so if they had come to LA, I would have been caretaking them in a sense. And I just didn't want anything else on my plate. I was very focused on getting this guy through this crisis. Um, so he talked to them, but they they didn't visit. And his his support team uh, were kind of they just didn't show up. You know, his agent, his manager, um, they just kind of you know they came for one visit and then they were like, well, we'll see you on the flip side or whatever. Um, well, this is all so, on. This is on. All, I don't know how old you are here, but this is all on a young lady's shoulders, who was a model and an actress whose life was perfect. Well, sometimes life is. Um, you say life was perfect. Well, life is pretty yeah. good for you. Life's pretty good. Life is really good for you, and here you are dealing with this crisis. You're telling your parents to stay out. You're dealing with your fiance, who doesn't look kind of well here, and you're making all these big decisions. And you said, it's your faith that pulled you through. Were you, were you always, yeah, I was you always making spiritual? very big decisions. And I didn't realize how big the decisions were until uh, months later when I was hearing Kevin tell the story and he he's getting it wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, he seriously didn't understand what was going on. When, and we, I thought we were making decisions together. Like I was assisting him in making decisions, but in fact, um, and, and there were some big decisions to make, but back to, back to going into the intensive care room and asking him if he didn't want me to take the job when he said he didn't, I said, Oh, that's the compromise. I just give up my career. And it was like that. And it fit. It was perfect. It was a binary choice. And so part of what I talk about to young parents and families is you need to boil things down to a binary choice. Um, the lie that young women are sold is that they can have it all. You can't because you're gonna sacrifice something along the way. So I want people to understand things are things can be boiled down to binary choices where you you do one thing and you don't do the other thing or you figure out how to how to put one thing forward and then do the other thing maybe on the side but don't think that you're going to do both things at the same time because it's you know multitasking is uh, is Doesn't work. not a reality right, right? So how you were raised in a faith-based family, or this is something you found on your own? Yeah, I, I was not raised in a faith-based family. I was raised as a as an atheist Jew who only celebrated Christmas and Easter. <laughs> Figure that out. <laughs> no, I'm not going to try. But okay, so <laughs> and 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 how did you, so so your family had very little in the way of religion, especially Jewish religion. There was nothing there, right? Not especially Jewish religion. Actually, of, of any religion, we had a little bit of Judaism because I went to Saturday school uh, up until about 12 years old. So, um, but, I, but I will say, you know, in the Reformed synagogues, I think that, um, I think that the, they've adopted the cultural attitude about the Bible, that the Bible is a series of fairy tales. 
Well, I'm not going to fight you on that, but yeah. Um, so, um, so you, where do you, where do you start to believe more and become more faith-based? Uh, when I succeeded in my career. So I was traveling all around the world. I was making a ton of money. Um, I had arrived, but for all intents and purposes, I had achieved what had been set out for me to achieve, which was career and money, like stability, like self, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That, that I was self-sustaining, that I could su support myself. And I went, so this is it? Like that was actually much easier than I thought it was going to be. I mean, when I was in school, I was working on an ulcer. Uh, because I was raised by, basically, I was raised by a single mom uh, who had never graduated college. And so that's why we had such a focus on getting your education so that you could support yourself. So once I was supporting myself and and doing it like very, very well, I was like, okay, so now what? And so I went on a search for the meaning of life. And I discovered um, I discovered that there's order in the universe. And if there's order, then there's an order maker because everything that we know is that things naturally devolve into chaos, entropy. And therefore, if there is order, there is an order provider. And that turns out to be God. Strangely, you might want to call him something else like spirit, but it's God. And how old are you when this happens? I was um, early 20s. And what you, would you do? You went on a search for finding religions or read a book? I read, well, I read a ton of books and then I started attending religious services. And I finally ended where, where, up where at church. Where were you attending religious services? Every re You were going around started, shopping religions? I did. Well, I, well no, I started, I started with Judaism and I went to synagogue several times. And the rabbi was brilliant. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, there was a little bit of a barrier for en to entry in the synagogues. Um, you had to be a member or you had to be accompanied by a member, that kind of a thing. And so it didn't quite resonate with me. So I ended up asking just, just because I realized, you know, I'm shopping. So I'm looking for a house of worship so that I can worship God. And so the synagogues that I went to with my friends were nice. And there was a barrier to entry, basically. And so I reached out to another friend who I knew was Christian. I said, do you go to church? And she looked at me kind of cross-eyed because people don't ask that question, but they should. Um, and she said, yes, I do, because she had just found a new church that she liked. And I said, would you be willing to let me accompany you one day. And she's like, well, sure, if you want. And so I went to church and I really liked it. I liked the service. I liked the pastor. What'd you like? Um, what, what, what resonated with you? You got there. What, what called to your soul? Um, initially, well, two things. The music was phenomenal, very <laughs> uplifting, very fulfilling. You felt like you felt like you were among friends. There was a joy in the atmosphere. People really enjoyed worship. And then the pastor spoke like a regular human being about things that were happening in the culture and about how the Bible tells us we should be behaving about those kinds of things. And so it was relevant 
and biblical at the same time. And I found that to be very encouraging. And I always left service feeling like I could be a better person now that I knew the things that the pastor had shared. So it was very inspirational for me. Um, I still didn't believe in Jesus uh, because, you know, I, I was raised as a Jew and Jesus was just some nice guy. Um, but in church, I discovered God, like I, or, or I suppose God found me there or not that I was lost to him or I found God there, whatever. And so I started attending that church religiously, um, mm-hmm. even if my girlfriend wasn't going. And the funny thing is the story that she told at my wedding was that when I asked her to take, when I asked her to take me to church, she had been she had left her church because she felt like God was um, like she felt that the church was telling her that she had to go evangelize people and she wasn't comfortable like going and saying, Hey, you need God, you need Jesus or whatever. Uh, So, so she had stopped going to church and only recently had decided to go back to church and had found this really wonderful church. And so when I asked her if she would take me to church, she was sort of like, well, God, if, that's what you meant. I mean, I can do that. <laughs> that was a layup. You, 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 that was a layup for you. That was pretty simple. Um, so, so take me back now. Kevin is at this point stable, getting better. What's happening by that point? Well, Kevin, they discharged him from the hospital and sent him back to work. So he went, he went back to work to shoot a movie in Atlanta, and he collapsed on the set because he had had three strokes. And at Cedar sinai they did not do the necessary research to prevent his collapse. Because if they had done a follow-up MRI, and I want people to know, the initial MRI was done within hours of the events. And MRIs don't show the events until about three days after the events. So his initial MRI came back clean, so they didn't believe that he had had strokes. They sent him back to work, and he collapsed on set. They discharge him. He goes back to work. How long after does he collapse? About a week. A week later, he's... Maybe less. What happens then? Maybe less. And he collapsed because he had another panic and anxiety attack, which we didn't know what that was. So he's shaking on the ground uncontrollably, feeling like he's dying again. And they put him in an ambulance and take him to the hotel in Atlanta, the hotel, to the hospital in Atlanta. And they call me and say, we just took your fiance to the hospital in Atlanta and I get on a plane within hours. What are you thinking at this point? Do you think that it's, it's going to be the end? Yeah, now, now, I'm, now I'm severely, severely concerned. But I'm going to go fix things. So hang on, hang on, hang on. Like I, I need to go there and, and fix this. You get a call, get you get a right. call, your fiance is taken to the hospital a week after, yeah. you know, everything... That was wrong. He's taken again. You hop on a plane. What are you thinking? This is back in the day when I guess there wasn't any uh, Wi-Fi. So you're on the plane for four or five hours. You have no idea what's happening. Right. And what's your worst fear? Well, you, you, are you thinking your worst fears at this point? Yeah, I was, I was panicked and I was prayerful. What does that mean? Tell me how that works. I was just a- asking for a miracle. I was saying, you know, this isn't the way that this works. So I'm not going to, here's the thing. I I believe that, I believe that our, our thoughts 
you know, I wrote this the other day. Life is not what you think. Your thoughts are your life. So I make a... What does that mean to me? I make an effort to control my thoughts. So I don't catastrophize. And I don't think of all the negative things that can possibly happen. Unless it's, unless it's for a reason. Unless it's like, so I need to prepare because this might happen. So let me think about the worst case scenario and what I will do then. But it's, in a, it's sort of a controlled environment. I don't just allow if I can help it, which, you know, it's difficult to do, but I don't just allow my thoughts to run rampant and, and put me into a tailspin. So I was thinking positive thoughts. I was saying, okay, I'm going to get there and, and we'll take care of this. And um, I'll, I'll talk to the doctors and I'll figure this out. And, but I mean, to be, to be perfectly honest, I was, I was panicked. I don't really remember. I remember calling my girlfriend and saying, um, can you water my plants or something? You know what I mean? Like I, I, I do remember being in panic mode, getting packed and, and the, the nervous and anxiety for getting on the plane and everything. You're on autopilot. Uh, you're on autopilot here. You're just getting yeah, going yeah, through the really. You're not thinking. Get right. off the plane, rush to the hospital, and then what? Well, they did, they, at that point, by the time I got there, I guess they had the MRI results back or they were getting them back. I was there when the doctor came in and he said, so your MRI shows that you've had three strokes. And Kevin's like, yeah. And the doctor said, you've had three strokes. You, you should not be working. You need to rest. And that's when it was sort of like, well, that makes perfect sense. But Cedars had never done the follow-up MRI you know, after. What, what, that's the what event. scares me. That's what scares me. I'm well, yeah. I'm in New York, right? We have the greatest hospitals in the world. Cedars Sinai, LA, phenomenal. All the celebrities, everyone they have, any, everyone who's anyone is there. And such a great hospital. And you know what you're doing, right? They have a caretaker who is pretty intelligent managing this care, and they screw up. And it always it freaks me out. Like my wife's a pharmacist and she's the medical person in the house. So she knows all this stuff. When my, my mother, my father was in the hospital. She was the, she was the point person. I'm terrible, terrible at that. Doctors tell this. I just, just whatever they say, I, I don't even think twice. And she asks a million questions. We found out so many conflicting stories that this doctor didn't know what that and all sorts of problems could happen, yep. which thank God yep. she averted. And here you are at Cedar sinai Managing his care, great hospital, and still they screwed up. It, well, like I said, you know, I, because because I had volunteered there for, oh, well, oh, and you volunteered oh, you, there, and you were comfortable, and you knew the people. With all of that, they still screwed up. Well, that's because I didn't know that the MRI wouldn't show. So I thought, yes, he's had three strokes, but there's no damage. No, but it's not. It's not, it's heard, not for, right? But it's not for you to make that call. It's it's not. You're no, not of the course doctor. not. It no, but but happens. okay. So you want the you want the the follow up story. So Kevin quit the movie. Sadly, um, that was that was very hard for him to sort of admit defeat um, or temporary defeat, and he walked away from that. And we went back to L.A. and started to reorganize so that he could get the proper care and make a recovery. And we went back to see the head neurologist at Cedars. Who and and Kevin said to him point blank, why, why did you mm -hmm. send me back to work? 
And the neurologist said, well, I mean, you're Hercules. Get out of here. And I, I swear to God, Kevin goes, you know, that's a TV show, right? Like, no, he couldn't admit, he couldn't admit that. He definitely was joking with you. No, he did. No, he's like, well, I just assumed that you would be able to beat this thing. Like, beat this but seriously, thing? they hadn't done, they hadn't done the necessary testing in order to, and I don't know what, I, I honestly don't know what he was smoking the day that he said, yeah, just release him. It'll be fine. Um, the fact was they couldn't do anything more for him. Um, except maybe say, you shouldn't go back to work. You should take some time off. We went to USC medical and the doctor there said, you, you need to take some time off. And so, um, so we did. And I basically stopped working because that was, that was the decision that I had made and started taking care of him. And I said to him, you have three areas that you have to address. Your, you have to address the physical, which you've done, but you're going to go to physical therapy, which was crazy because they'd never seen a 36-year-old needing stroke care. You know what I mean? They were used to oxygenarians. So they'd give him an exercise and tell him to do 20, and he'd do 180. But there was, not, there was no, was there any physical um, um, difficulties that he was having? Absolutely. He couldn't walk straight. He could So wait, wait, he can't walk straight and he goes back to work? Yes. All right. I At never went to point, medical school, but I, it just doesn't sound right. No, he was dizzy all the time. He was constantly having a feeling of falling backwards. He had lightning strikes in his field of vision. Um, that were incessant. So it made it hard for him to go to sleep. He reacted very strongly to, uh, to any strong, any loud noises or lights or any stimulus whatsoever. He really needed to be in a sense, locked in a dark room. And instead, because he, because he's a type A and he's driven and he wanted to work and the doctor said, sure, go to work. He went back to work and he never should have. And so after that, we took about four months of just, we used to go, when we, when we first started, we would go for a long walk in the morning and then he would spend the rest of the day drooling on the couch, like literally, like completely incapacitated. And then I took him to physical therapy and they gave him some exercises, some hand-eye coordination exercises, throw the ball up in the air. And because he was so driven, he would do 180, but they would lay, the, that exercise alone would just lay him flat because his brain would go, mm. no more, we're done. And then he developed, he had the panic and anxiety attacks that would hit for no reason. And we had to figure those out. And he developed an allergy to MSG. So unbeknownst to me, I was like poisoning him when I fed him. Um, it took us a year to figure that out uh, because his symptoms were headache. They, they were all the, sa the same symptoms. Um, so once we figured that out, we cut, his, we cut the symptoms almost in half, but maybe even more by then. Um, so yeah, he was, he was severely debilitated. Let's put it this way. After four months, we decided that he should go back to work on Hercules. And frankly, the name of the show is Hercules. They couldn't really do the show without him. They'd been very patient and they didn't want to lose the show. And, uh, so when they brought him back, he had been working 16 hour days, maybe more, uh, between, being on set from, from start to finish every day and then going to the gym for two hours and then working on scripts every day 
and talking to the writers back in LA about the scripts and stuff um, and choreographing the fight scenes and preparing. So he, he worked really nonstop. The first year of the show, it was six days a week. Um, and so when he went back to work, they got him for one hour a day. One hour on set a day. Um, he couldn't drive for at least two years. He couldn't drive. Mm -hmm. He lost 15% of his vision in both eyes. And that has not come back, but it's an amazing thing, the brain's capacity to heal. And so the brain has figured out workarounds, but I'm sure that that contributed to his dizziness mm -hmm. and nausea and the, the whole thing. I mean, so the greatest yeah, I, I, married, I married a cripple, you know? The greatest day of Kevin's life was Dave met you. I think so. Well, the facts, <laughs> I don't know what your relationship is like, but boy, oh boy, where would he be you if know, he wasn't I was, for you? I became his cheerleader and um, he gets negative. Uh, he gets down, you know, during this time. And, and I'm there saying to him, you know, yeah, you're right. It's crap. But what are you going to do about it well, now? What, what pushes you Forward, through? You know? what, but what pushes you through? You're supporting him, but what's uh, pushing you? You must you must wake up some mornings and feel terrible. No, no, I, I got what I want. I got the man of my dreams. And I said to him, and this is in his book, too, actually, uh, we were we were in bed one night and he was making a recovery. The first year was brutal because he didn't believe that he was going to recover, but I always did. Wait, but you guys married at this point? We got married four years into his illness, into his recovery. Four year, four months, four months. So oh, we, four months. So he, wow. he had the strokes the day that Princess Di died in September. And we got married in January, the following January. So you, and God bless him, the neurologist is the one who said to us, I never put life on hold for an illness. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's right. We're going to start this life together. So we did. So your first couple of years of marriage, you were, you were basically his aide. Yeah. I was a cheerleader. That's very heavy. Very heavy for one um, person to shoulder. You know what? Uh, love gets you through it. You know, I want to tell you something. Just uh, I was speaking to Governor Huckabee a couple of weeks ago, and he was 18. Him and his wife were 18 years old, got married. A year into the marriage, a year and a half, she has back problems. She, she was a dental hygienist. They didn't know what it was, maybe because she leans over. Cancer of the spine. He nurses her back to health the next couple of years. At the same time, going to school at the same time holding a job and driving her every day, two hours each way back and forth to the hospital. 18 and a half, know. 19, it was 19 and a half years old. I didn't know that. And I'll tell you this, um, everybody has a story. You know, we've, we've entered into a cultural moment now where we're so quick to judge based on one thing. And uh, I'll tell you, everybody has a story. So, we, we ought to be considering that before we, you know, Absolutely. speak too harshly about people and stuff. So that's what your book, True Faith, you and him both wrote this book. It's about this whole episode in your lives. Yeah, it's about that and, and having children. And, you know, you said that I had the perfect life. I, I really didn't. I had a lot of great things going on and I had a lot of tragedy and trauma. And uh, uh, it, ba it balanced, you know, I balanced it. Um, cause that's what we do. 
us October babies. Uh, but um, there's, you, you must give thanks for the good times and the good things, even when you're going through the bad things, because that's what gives you hope. And uh, I think it's Dennis Prager who, who brought this up, that um, the key ingredient for happiness is gratefulness. That's why we pray. You know, that's, that's amazing. Yep. So you, you write this book, what's the takeaway? If I, want to, if I want to have a better marriage, what am I learning from this book? What, what, what words of advice can you give anyone on how to have a better marriage after reading your book? Well, marriage is a dance. And so the idea is there's a give and a take. And, um, and if you dance together, it's going to go better. So you have to figure out who's in, who's leading and who's following and, and all of that. So I, I guess, I guess the real main point is that marriage takes work. You have to be, you have to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not considerate. Um, you don't uh, have to be, you have to, I, I think, I, I don't know if this is the word, but selfless. At times you need to be selfless. It's not about you. Yeah. I, I was going to say, you have to be consequential. You have to be purposeful. It's not just, oh, you fall in love and then you're married and everything's fine. No, you have to be purposeful. So if you want to, if, if you're, if something's bugging you, you need to be purposeful. And by the way, same thing with parenting. If there's something with your kid that you're not happy about or whatever, you need to take a moment and say, Hey, come here. I need to speak with you. Same thing with your, with your spouse. I need to speak with you. I want to work this out and I need your help to work out because this is wrong. I, or, or I think this is wrong and I need to figure out how to fix it. And if you disagree that it's wrong, please explain to me so that I can, so that I can be okay with it too, that kind of a thing. And it takes that commitment. So, and I, and, and I think that, you know, maybe, maybe that's why a lot of marriages fail is they, they lose the love because they stop working on it. And then they go, it's not worth it. I'm better off alone or something. I don't, I'm not sure. You know, I, I, it always it always gets me. Um, so I worked, we started, I was part of a great team of people, really great team in our community. We, we formed uh, an organization to help people with addiction. And uh, really one of the proudest things, really most happiest about that. And we've helped thousands of people over the past, I think it's now 18 years. And when you look at the wedding picture, just and take take a case of a man, for example, who does drugs or is addicted to gambling or alcohol. And you look at that, I always go to, when I see their houses and stuff, and I look at their pictures, and there's always a wedding picture usually out. And you look at the the hope and the excitement and the and the love of life in both their eyes. And then you look at this guy sitting there destroying his life, not only his life, but his family's life. His wife, she didn't sign up for that. She didn't sign up for that. And I always look and I say, for myself, how are you still here? <laughs> How are you still with this guy? And she signed up for that. Yeah. She, she, and some she of, signed up for I, I, I'm not leaving. You know, I'm gonna, sometimes it, it happens to be that they just can't stay together. They just drift so far apart and for whatever reason. But it's like I look at these people as superhuman. I, I really hope I'm never challenged that way. But it's, it's an amazing amazing power that certain people have that they can look at their partner and say, you know what, I'll quit my job. I'll quit this. It's all, I'm all you now. Charles, That's what you did. 
what 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 your I think that the key is to understand that we get from giving. And so when we have the opportunity to give, we should be grateful for the opportunity to give. So I said to Kevin after, so he was well into his recovery. He wasn't fully back, but he was, you know, we could see, he could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I said, you know, there's a reason to be grateful for this having happened. And part of that is I don't think we would have lasted if you hadn't had the strokes because he was going so fast, I couldn't keep up. And in fact, it nearly killed him. But I was, I was smart enough to go, this guy's going so fast and I've got to figure this out. And that's what was going on in my head. How am I going to balance the marriage and my career? It wasn't even, I didn't recognize it then, but it was really, how am I going to balance keeping up with this guy and, and staying sane. And you know what I mean? And so when it nearly killed him and I realized that I actually, that, that the thoughts that I was having about balancing him and career, mm-hmm. you know, and I, so I, so you have to give stuff up. You have to be, you have to be ready to make a sacrifice even for yourself. You just have to recognize that sacrificing for somebody else is actually for yourself. There's a great, if I can reference a friend's episode where Phoebe tries to give, um, uh, give selflessly. And the problem is that she feels so good about doing the giving that they point out, see, that wasn't selfless. But you gain something. Cause you gain. And so wh- and that's what we ought to be teaching our children is how to give because there is extreme joy in the giving. You know, Mike Huckabee never asked to be of service to his bride in that way. And I'm sure he would never wish that she were ill. But given the opportunity, look what a legacy he has now. And the same with me, you know. I mean, Kevin knows that I gave up my career. And the weird thing is, my career's come back tenfold. And I did nothing, I did nothing to deserve that, you know what I mean? But 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 the whole thing's been redeemed in the long run. You're never resentful during any of that time. I'm giving up my career. I got so many great things going on. You never resentful during that time period when you're nursing uh, Kevin back. No, not even, not even close. No, when I was faced with that choice in the hospital, I recognized what I was choosing, and what I was choosing was so much better than a career that had left me wondering, what is this all about? Why am I even bothering? And that's the problem with our youth today is they're taught, they're taught nihilism, really. They're taught that there is no God. They're, they're taught that there's really no purpose because they're just accidents of nature, um, Darwinianism and, and all of that, right? Survival of the fittest, which is the most brutal mm law to subscribe to. And it's what we're seeing playing out on our streets today, by the way, with the rioting and the looting. I'm just going to take what's mine, which is, by the way, the worst way to get something, right? Because then you're resentful to the person who you stole from and you're resentful of yourself for having stolen it because you know you didn't deserve it. And so we're basically fomenting this kind of nihilism in our culture today that is self-defeating. And so you have these these young people growing up and going, well, I don't know why. 
Now with the lockdown, we've seen a 30% jump in suicides. Whose lives are we saving here? So how do we, how do we, okay, so you brought up a, a great point. I how, went off on a complete tangent No, 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 I'm, I'm with you. So now you're telling me basically, well, look, um, we have a society that's based outside of ourselves. It's basically a godless society, nihilism, survival of the fittest. That's where we're going. How do we change that? How do we change that whole society? I don't know if it's practical, but how do you, how do you just move it to the right? I love it. I love that you asked that. And for me, the solution is home education. The solution is for parents to understand you are sacrificing more than you can bear when you send your children into an institution to be educated. You're sacrificing more than you will ever know. You will never know what sacrifice you're, ma you're making, except the parents that say to me, wow, your kids are really, I, this happened the other day. I met a, I met another mom and I had my kids with me and we were doing something and she reached out to me a week later and she said, by the way, um, I would love your, your thoughts on my kids because her kids are basically the same ages as my kids. And one of them goes to boarding school and the other two are at home doing distance learning on their, you know, laptops or whatever. And she's struggling because I don't know if they're getting distracted or anything. And she, so she said, I would love your insights because I know you homeschool your kids. And I have to say, I was singularly impressed by your kids. Yeah. Because so, my relationship with my kids is like golden. Yeah, but not, not everyone could do that. You got it, Sam. Not every, I don't, I don't, I can't see a parent who That's doesn't. That's not an argument. I'm no, sorry. I'm not giving I'm, an argument. I'm not even going to, not let me, can run, can, can run a mile. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try running a mile. Okay, hang on a second. A parent who has barely finished high school, now she has three kids at home. She can't work because let's say she's a single parent. She can't homeschool rather. She's a single parent. What is she doing? Tell me how this is practical for her. Why are you giving me the, the, the anomaly? Okay, but right? just address that. I'll give you the other one because you're going to tell me it's, I don't know what you're going to tell me. But tell me, how do you address that? How do you address that? Your mother was a single single parent, right? Raising four girls. Yes. Okay. Did she work? Um, she worked and then she got married and then she worked again. And then she got married again. And she worked. Okay. So <laughs> she, she worked. she didn't homeschool us. She didn't. So she's she not a good example. No, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not making the case for homeschooling. I'm just asking you. The mother has to work, single parent. Just tell me how to solve that problem. We, we, you solved all the other problems with homeschooling. Assume that. Sure. Tell me how you're uh, solving that problem. Either a co-op or working from home. Um, you know, school takes eight hours a day. Education only takes a couple. For younger kids, it's two to three hours a day. This lady, uh, this, wait, wait. It, it, Sam, it, this lady's a nurse. This lady's a nurse. She works at a hospital. She works during the day. Okay. Tell, tell me, I know, I know you got it. I know you got it and I'm with you. I just want to, for those who are listening, because I want to tell you, I have told my wife that we have, I have five kids. My youngest now is 19. So I'm past the school age of paying tuition. We private schools, thank God. So, and then again, I, I, what I got out of the, some of those private schools, I wish I had my money back. But anyway, if I told my wife, we're going to homeschool these kids. And she says, I don't have the time of day and I'm working full time. 
what what is that person supposed to do who means well but just can't do it? You have a choice to make. You had the child. So it's up to you. Um, and I can't solve, so, so now you've presented a, a second problem and I can't solve everybody's problems for them. What I'm saying is that you have to prioritize and your children ought to be the priority. So you just say, well, I have to work. Uh, Two, two income household, I'm sorry, do you, do you really have to work? Well, we can't afford a second car. We can't afford this, we can't afford that. Um, you know, we, we, we've become so selfish. Devote yourself to your children and figure out how to get it done. Yeah, okay, single mom and she's a nurse. Um, uh, maybe she does home care for people so that she has flexible hours. I talked to a guy who was a driver. He, was, he, he drove a limo, okay? And his son was failing. And I, and he said, well, I homeschooled for a year. I said, oh, tell me more. He, he changed his job to night shifts because his wife refused to do it. And so he worked nights, came home and schooled his young boy from seventh grade to ninth grade. So the, the boy was going to have to repeat seventh. They did seventh and eighth in one year, and then he sent his kid back to school for ninth grade. And I said, well, how is your relationship with your child? And he said, well, it was rough going at the beginning, but um, we've got a really good relationship now. Um, you, here's the problem. Here's the problem that we face. We all went to public school, so we think that education looks a certain way, and we're wrong because we've been educated by the educators who are not educators. They're schoolmasters. It's a completely different thing. And it's hard. It's so hard to have a conversation about it because we're speaking a different language in a sense. So you're giving me a, a, a one-off scenario. And I know there's lots of, of single moms out there. There shouldn't be. That's wrong. Hey, look, if I had a magic wand, okay. let's assume there wasn't. But we're exactly. Dealing with, if we're... I had a magic wand, I'd give you the solution right away. Okay, but there are... I'm not saying that this that 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 everybody can do this. I'm saying that everybody should do this and figure out the best way to get this done. And part of it is stop relying on the schools because they're not getting the job done. So don't tell me that a good alternative is to send the child to school. It's not because the schools aren't getting the job done and you spent, I don't know how many thousands of dollars on schools and you just said, I wish I could get my money back. On some of my kids, okay, hang on, done. hang on. Let me qualify that on some of my kids. Others did oh, well. Some of your kids. Others I'm just did saying, well. Like, you don't know what you signed up for. You well, think you signed up for one thing and you get something else maybe. Hang on, and hang I'm on, hang on. Like, yeah. Hang on a second. I'm with you. I'm with you, Sam. I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, so, so I send my kids to a private school, a private uh, Jewish school, yeshiva, dual curriculum, same one I went to uh, as a kid, and then I transferred to another one, same one Dennis Prager went to, in fact, yeshiva Flapper. Oh. We went to the same school. But cool. A lot, of, a lot of years apart. A lot of years apart. Dual curriculum. We had to learn Hebrew. Had secular in the afternoon and Hebrew studies. And then it was tough. It was absolutely tough. When I got older, when I got older and I joined the board of the school I sent my kids to, I was the treasurer for many years. We used to oh. tell parents the exact same. Why don't you do this, this? We said, hey, hey, we're a school. We have to have a team here. We don't raise your kid. You raise your kid. You have to raise your kid and schools for teaching. Now, 
we were on the same wavelength. We weren't teaching the kids X and they were learning Y at home. That wasn't the case. But I do hear you that a lot of parents, I don't say a lot, let me rephrase. There are parents who basically look at the school system as nothing more than a nanny. And they think the school is raising their kids. If the school's raising your kids, you have a serious problem at home. It's a partnership. It's a partnership. Now, I hear what you're saying, and I just, I'm troubled by the fact that I don't think it's, it's practical for every parent, no matter, even if they say, I'm going to take this choice, make this choice, it's practical for every parent to consider homeschooling. I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm just I'm trying not to figure that I'm out. I'm offering the practical solution, except if you consider the outcomes. So, so you're saying practical because you still subscribe to the idea that the school educates. It doesn't. It's schools. And that's why there are so many parents who think that they can't. Let me ask you this. You went to high school, right? You graduated high school. Yes. And, um, and you felt like you couldn't teach your kids because you didn't get taught how to teach your kids, right? That's not an education. No, hang on, hang on. You're asking specifically me or you're just asking in general? I'm just asking in general. I have parents say to me, I could never homeschool my kids. I wouldn't know where to begin. Okay. I go, that's really sad because you went through high school. You graduated high school and yet you feel incapable of teaching a third grader. But you're willing to send the third grader into the same system that turned out the likes of you, somebody incompetent to teaching a third grader. So shouldn't we, should, shouldn't we be working on the system as well? It's, it's a system that's needed. Agreed? <laughs> Wait, is, is it needed or not? When you drop your child off, you, you say it's a partnership. It is not a partnership. It's actually a, a war, okay? And the schools have a, have a self-interest in winning your child away from you as the parent. So you drop your child off at school and you say, now go ahead because I can't, the school can, and they know better than I do. That's what you're telling your child, regardless of you know, what you verbally say to them. The, the action of sending the child to school automatically undermines your authority. Then the child comes home with a paper and says, daddy, you have to sign this. It's a permission slip, you have to sign it. Okay, give it to me, I, I will sign it. Now your authority has been sufficiently undermined so that when the school says to the child, have all the sex you want, nothing bad can happen, which they do, your authority's out the window. So with you say to the kid, you really shouldn't have sex before marriage, that's not a good plan because it results in single parenthood, right? The, the child goes, what does my dad know? His authority has been completely undermined. The school has the authority, just like he told me it does. So isn't it really society that really is doing this and the school is just acting because that wasn't the case in the 1950s. My parents were at the school in the 1950s. There were yeah, morals. Well, the schools hadn't been infiltrated by Marxism. No. But they in, are now. The 50s. Not. So, so basically you're telling me that the system has been taken over by Marxists? Well, by and large, yes. That's what, look, the results are in. In the last election, more youth voted for Bernie Sanders, who is an avowed socialist, than for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump combined, okay? So, so, so we are turning out socialists. Whether you wanna believe we have socialism in our schools or not, we're turning out socialists. Okay. And if you get my book, which is right here. Hold it right up. Uh, you know, I've written it up. If you look at Common Core, Common Core teaches this new, this new math. I, I, I don't have it marked. Um, it teaches this new math 
that did we need new math? No, the old math was working just fine. Our bridges and our tunnels are, are well, you know, well done. This is the new math. It's replacing our um, it's replacing our standard algorithm, which, by the way, is the logic part of math. Uh, they want to do away with logic. So they've replaced the standard algorithm with the um, the lattice method, which is insanity itself. It makes math magic, but more importantly, daddy can't do it. So when the fourth grader goes home and says, daddy, I need help with my math homework. And dad says, well, I don't know how to do that. Let's do the standard algorithm the way that I learned. The child says, no, daddy, the teacher said I have to learn it this way. And then the child says, gosh, my daddy's dumb. He doesn't even know fourth grade so, math. So, so you, you believe that this is a conspiracy in order to get the kids away from their parents? No, don't put, no, so, 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 so. Nah, that's a word that you're putting in my mouth. No, I never no, no. Said I'm that. saying, I'm asking. I'm saying, you that, consider I'm saying that, a conspiracy. that by and large, our universities have now been taken over by Marxist doctrine and leftism, and that that has trickled down into the schools. Now, for a teacher on a, on a per-teacher basis, no. Teachers are wonderful. Teachers are lovely people. But they have directives that they have to follow. And if you look at the material that's going out into the classrooms, you'll see the you you will it's easy to see in a sense the nefarious elements that are um that are behind those materials and that's and and by the way just look at the culture today no no i'm look with at you the rioting and the looting in the streets is that the way regular people behave absolutely no. not no. but they've been taught that in our schools when you have a school that teach it look we took the bible out of the schools but we didn't take religion out of the schools so we have secular humanism in our schools which teaches survival of the fittest, okay? It also, by, by the same token, it teaches that the Bible is a series of fairy tales. And the churches are doing very little to, to, to shore that up and say, no, no, the Bible is the word of God and it's the truth. And of course, I'm speaking, of course, of the Torah as well, right? See, see by, the way, by the way, Sam, let me just interject. That's why my parents, and my father's a warehouse manager, and our family went on scholarship, financial scholarship. It was... I remember those days it was said it was difficult, but they did not want us to go to public school. They, we went to a private yeshiva day school, which had the same morals, which had the same uh, love of teaching, of, 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 of the Bible, of, of everything dealing with Judaism, because they wanted to put us in that environment, and like-minded parents. So right. they sacrificed tremendously, tremendously. We didn't go on vacations. We had a 13-year-old car. My mother didn't get new dresses. My father had to work bingo that, because we were going through scholarship. Old, it was tough. It was absolutely tough. Isn't that an old-fashioned idea, though? Pardon? Isn't that an old-fashioned idea, That was though? it. So here's my point. Here's my Who point. sacrifices today? Here's my point. I'm okay. with you. I love what you're saying. The only thing that I have a little, I, and, and everything you say, I'm with you. So... I could have wrote that book. You don't have to be with me, but no, I like it. Come no, but along. I am, but I am. <laughs> uh, uh, so my only diff, my only point that I have with you is this. I would say, I would say, look, homeschooling, that's a big, that's, that's to me, it sounds hard. Maybe you have in, in your book, they're your kids and you show me how to You're do wrong. it. It's easy. Maybe, maybe. Let's assume wrong, that. Yeah. Let's assume that. But still, I don't have the temperament. I have, I have, I have the patience of a house fly. I'm not going to sit and go over my third grade. I remember my father, wow, the memory just came back. He used to have a pen. He used to take out his pen out of his pocket. And we used to learn uh, Hebrew. We had to read it, and there were vowels. The vowels are underneath. And I used to get so mixed up with the vowels. And as we're learning it, when I said, you know, the dots on top, it's all. And he wrapped my knuckles. I could still feel it. He wrapped my knuckles saying, no, it's not that. 
That was, and it lasted maybe five minutes, ended up me crying. That's what, that, that was education at home. So all I'm saying is this. Doesn't it make sense, in addition to what you're saying, for those who can, to rework the system, to get conservatives, to get God back in the system, in addition to the homeschooling? Do you have any problem with that? I don't think it's possible. Yeah, I didn't ask you that. If How are you going to get God back into the system? Let's assume, let's assume we had a magic wand and we could fix the schools back to the way they were in the 1950s and 1940s where kids used to dress and there was decorum and there was respect for people who were older than you and there was some type of, there, there, was, there was morality. There was, there was morality more Bible-like than it is today. Shouldn't we try to do that and, and really leverage this instead of just home by home by home, which seems to me insurmountable? So I, I, did a, I, I do a series of videos on my um, YouTube channel and on my website. And I did a series of videos called Homeschooling is Easy, Parenting is Hard. So the conundrum that you have is that parents are abdicating their parental responsibility, their parental rights, by sending their children to school. You talk about it as if it's a partnership. It's not. So I don't know how you can get around that. And so... So school, and, and now schools were never a partnership? Sam, schools never were a partnership? You're telling me that they should have been homeschooling back the 50 years ago, 60 years ago? The one-room was a partnership. Pardon? The one-room schoolhouse was a partnership. But the other thing is, you have to understand that um, we no longer teach civics in our schools. What are civics? American civics are that Americans have the, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that the power resides within the people because our government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. The government has no interest in convincing the citizens that the power resides with them. And so we have a tremendous conflict of interest between having a government, uh, a conflict of interest between the government and the people and having the government in charge of education well, we're seeing the results of that. And so we're, we're going towards socialism, which is that the government retains the power. And that is the exact opposite of the American system, the way that it was contrived. So I don't see uh, an easy way out of sort of repairing, repairing the system because the system was the, was the one that was corrupted. So how can you repair it such that it won't be corrupted? So Since we started with it corrupted, how do you resolve that problem? So we so just just throw our hands in the air and say walk away from education the way we know it. So what I'm saying is I'm empowering parents to be the the parent provider and educator of their children, which is actually what the Bible calls for. The Bible never says make sure your children go to government schools for their education. In fact, the Bible never says make sure your children go to a church for an education. I think that we ought to be empowering parents because they ought, ought to be the backbone of the society. The family is the, the family structure is the building block of our society. And anything that goes to undermine that, I find objectionable. So, so in Judaism, it actually says in Deuteronomy that it's the father's responsibility and you should teach your children. So the yep. question is, if a father's not capable of teaching his own child, he's, he's, uh, do you believe that children? Do you believe children are a gift from God? Uh, 
so is life. Yeah, absolutely. Then, then the father is capable of teaching his child. Uh, see, so, okay, so rabbinic Judaism, especially Maimonides, a greatest Jewish philosopher ever, lived uh, 10, uh, in 1035 to 11, no, 1214, so around 11th, 12th century. He basically said if a father can't provide for his child's education, he should hire a tutor. He should hire a teacher. And to teach right, them. Right, but he, but he is he is hiring a tutor, not a teacher, a tutor, and he is supervising the education of said child. He doesn't know the child. He wants his he wants his values imparted to the child. Well, well the assumption is that the tutor has the same values. You're not hiring and by a the tutor. Way, that's that's Maimonides. That's not right. God, the Father. That's Maimonides no, talking. But the, the Bible so does say that a father. Guy, he's a good guy, but. You know. But if a father can't teach their child and is incapable, father's ignorant of the Jewish law of the Bible, how are you going to teach your kids? So you hire someone to do that. And you right. hire schoolhouses. And you hire. So, so I, I do hear what you're saying. Don't get me say wrong. hire a schoolhouse or hire the government. No, no, That's the, gov the government was never an issue. The government was never into play because the government was never involved in education. Right, because we had self-government, which is, which is the standard by which the United States was formed. We are self-governing supposedly and yet we are ceding our self-governance power to our government and we're going to pay the consequences well we're paying the consequences now you're telling me right what's that we're paying the consequences now we're where university kids are going out and thinking socialism an alternative is an alternative economic system and they have no idea right. what socialism is right go live in and a socialist why. country and here's the thing uh, you know I know that I, I sound uh, uh, fairly extreme when I talk about education. I'm just telling you like it is. It just is. I can't do anything about the way that it is and what the best solution is. But, you know, when you when you say uh, parents say, well, they don't have the patience to teach their kids. Well, I'm saying your children are a gift from God. Maybe God gave you your children to teach you some patience because, you know, the opposite of patience is anger. And so I, I, I question that you have an anger problem. Maybe you should resolve that, right? So, and by the way, patience is a virtue. Wouldn't it be great to learn some patience? Boy, and isn't that a great way to do it? I, with I, the love that you have for your child so that you put up with stuff. Because we know, you know, your kid comes to you with a drawing when they're three or five. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's the most beautiful drawing I've ever seen. You liar. But of course you do that because it's your child and you love that child. Do you think a teacher does that with 30 kids in the class? Well, it depends on the teacher. Some teachers did. I remember some teachers, you know, my daughter's a teacher and there were my, no point kids. Is the, my point is the teacher has 30 kids in the class. Yeah. Okay. Not that the teacher's a bad teacher or not a loving teacher, but with 30 kids in the class, some kids are going to get lost in the shuffle. So let me Do you want that child to be your child? I got you. You know, we put our kids in school with this idea that our kid will be the one who is best served. And I put my kid through first grade and second grade in our local really good public school until I realized he was not being served because he was the good kid. So he sat quietly. And so he wasn't the kid that got the attention. He wasn't the kid that got the special uh, uh, credit stuff or the, you know, the, the special instruction or what have you. He was the kid who was going to just be a good student. So I had the exact opposite scenario. I was never the smart kid in the class. I was the dumb kid in the class. So it was the honor kids that got all the attention and everyone else didn't. But as when I became involved in education, I realized that every parent thinks their kids, the honor class kid, who's getting that attention. And yeah, well, they're we, really not. They're really not. Yeah, 
we sign up thinking this is this is all going to work out like in our minds the fantasy is real we're we're just creating this fantasy for the kids and i started to realize and i tell that story in my book they're your kids sort of what happened to us and it wasn't like cataclysmic it was just this this idea that he wasn't being served he they weren't really paying attention to him and they weren't telling me what i was supposed to do in order to pay attention and make sure that it all went well. And I finally went, my gosh, if I if I fail, I'll I'll be doing better than they will because at least I'll have my kid. So it's the best solution. Is it is it perfectly easy for everybody to do? No, sometimes doing the hard thing is the right thing to do. Sometimes doing the hard thing is the best thing to do. All right, let me ask you uh, this last question on this and and uh, I love the passion. I'm with uh, look, I'm with you. My my daughter's a teacher. I love education. If I didn't do what I did, I would have been a history teacher because I love teaching. But um, here's my last thing for you. What percent do you think of parents can do this? You're going to, and it has to be less than 100% because let's assume you can have what that. Percent of what? what percent of parents do you think, based all of the factors, the single income, parents who just don't have the right temperament, what percent of parents do you think can do the homeschooling? Oh, can? Yes, can. Eighty-five? Eighty-five 85%. And for those 85%, what message do you want to give them? Well, no, I want to give, I want to give the message to everybody. Okay, but especially for those, eight, for those 85%, let's assume that they're, they're going to be the most willing to do. What, what would you tell them? Oh, I don't think they're going to be willing to do it, sadly. But but can because especially now, especially with COVID, you know, it used to be that the objection was, "What about socialization?" Well, what about socialization? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many reasons now to homeschool, and I'm hearing that it's exploding, which is exciting because it's it's about so much more than education. It's because it's not about education, because the schools are not educating. They're not in the business of educating. They're in the business of schooling, which is completely different. It's indoctrination. You know, I, I, it's dangerous. About, and so, you know, we talk about COVID being this dangerous virus. There's a virus that's much more dangerous, and that is the virus of leftism, socialism, Marxism, communism. It's all the same virus. The virus is a virus of greed, the virus of saying that I, I may not be capable, but I still want that thing and I'm gonna take it. The virus of uh, virtue signaling, like, like, you know, I'm gonna criticize somebody because even though I do the same thing that they do, by criticizing them, I elevate myself. That virus, that's what's in infecting our schools. So do I think that every child should basically and, and, I'm, and I'm speaking very broadly, of course, and there are exceptions to all of these rules, but do I think that children shouldn't be in school? Yeah, pretty much. Because that virus has now infect, fully infected our school system. Now, there are pockets of resistance. There are pockets of schools that are predominantly, you know, Judeo-Christian adherents who are running the school. And so they're running, they're running a bit of a, of a, a blocking system against some of the virus that's that's coming through in some of the literature but they're they're running the right way on a train that's headed the wrong way 
A train that's headed no. the wrong way. Wow, we got, you got to give me one positive thing to end this conversation with, Sam. I need something because I feel <laughs> terrible now that I sent my kids to school. Give me something to make me happy. Well, by the way, when you sent your kids to school, it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now. No, no, it wasn't even close. It was. Let me let me just let me be totally frank and totally. And your school was a very was a private special school. It was a I will private special school. Right. Everyone was on the I, same moral plane. It, there was no right. such thing as it was a it was a, a, a Jewish school based on certain values. These values Education should be. A couple of things. It should be learning to discern truth. We're not teaching that we're teaching that there is no truth. I'm going to get emotional now because it's the lies that we're teaching our children. We're teaching our children that they are accidents of nature. Okay. We're teaching them they have no value in our schools. How dare they teach a young child that his value is tied only to his color, the color of his skin, his, his socioeconomic status, his height, his weight. That's what they're teaching in our schools today. There, it's child abuse what they're doing to our children. And I'm speaking predominantly, of course, about government schools not the private community, but the private community sadly has modeled itself on government schools. And, and I'll tell you this, I had a, a, a young friend who was in college at a, at a Christian university and she would have lunch with this one professor who she really liked. And she eventually became convinced that the professor was atheist. And so she asked her at lunch one day, I don't understand, you know, you're teaching at a Christian university, but you're clearly an atheist, so I, I need to understand why. And the atheist said, sorry, this is my mission field. Okay, so parents, if you want your children to have your values, which is education, education is the discernment of truth, is the understanding of morality. That's what education is. It's not two plus two equals four, okay? Which is actually a representation of God's law which is logic, okay? So everything really reverts back to God. But if you want your children to have your value system, and I, and I would hope that you do, because if you don't, then why do you have that value system in the first place? Then you cannot send them to somebody who, by the way, most parents, most, in fact, you probably are among this group, I certainly was, we trust the school to pick the teacher. The teacher. Schools don't know what they're doing picking teachers. They're just hiring people who have good credentials. But that's how that guy, and I, I'm blanking on his name, in Seattle got hired. And he had, a, he had uh, countless um, kindergarten classes. And he maneuvered his, himself into getting the one kindergarten class that had a private bathroom so he could put cameras up inside the bathroom so that he could photograph the young children and sell their, their photographs online as pornography. And he had tons of child porn on his, on his uh, computer when they finally arrested him. And he was a kindergarten teacher. And no parent understood that when they were sending their child to him or they never would have sent him. I walked my kid down to the school and I was told that he was given the best teacher in the school. Oh, she's fantastic. Do you know why she was fantastic? Why everybody thought she was so great? She kept a bowl of candy in the classroom. Now, God bless her. She was a lovely lady and she probably did a good job teaching. But I know why everybody thought she was a good teacher because all the kids loved her. Why did they love her? Because she had candy. 
that's not education, okay? And stop thinking that education has to be like eight hours a day because it doesn't. And stop thinking that it has to be inside a classroom or inside a box because it doesn't. Steve Jobs gave the, gave the commencement address at Stanford and told mm. the non-graduates to run, run away from school because school puts a ceiling over your head. Mm. Okay? We're not raising entrepreneurs anymore. We're raising worker bees. And that's on purpose. That's why the school system was um, invented. Uh, no, that's, was, was, that's why we have the September to, September to June uh, period, you know, so they go right and work in the oh, fields no. and to teach them how to be factory okay, workers. That's, that's a remnant. That's a remnant from the one room schoolhouse. But but when the Mar when the Frankfurt School came in and the Marxists started to and Horace Mann and, and the rest of them came and redesigned our public schools and really said, OK, we need a concerted effort here. They first of all, they borrowed from the Prussian school, which was to create what? Not intelligent people. They were creating um, they were creating army, an army of people. Right. They were creating young men who would follow orders. Right. Conformity, okay? conformity. And they need conformity. And that's right. why you see everybody walking around with masks on. There's no scientific evidence about the masks. None. That, that's reliable anyway. The CDC evidence says masks are virtually indistinguishable from not wearing masks. The CDC just came out with the report that 85% of COVID patients today are avid mask wearers because they're constantly touching their faces. Uh, so, so the and yet you have a, an entire populace that is now conforming to the mask mandate because they just well, that's what my superiors told me to do. And why are we sending our kids to school? Because that's what we were told to do. And we just follow directions now because that's the way we were raised. And at the sound of the bell, we change our classrooms. And I'm trying to liberate people from that slavery. I'm trying to liberate them from that. How it's slavery of thought. How, how, how are you doing in this battle? How would you think, how would you grade yourself in, in liberating people from this kind of mind think? Uh, judging from comments that I'm getting uh, on my website and stuff, I'm, I'm doing okay, but it's a very difficult lesson to learn because I'm telling you, um, I'm telling you that, that you thought you put on a blue shirt today, but your shirt's actually gray. And you're going, no, no, I put, I specifically chose the blue shirt because that's what I, you know, we, we, it, we're, we're fish in an aquarium and I'm trying to tell you what it's like on dry land. And you're still in the aquarium. Love because it. you still have these ideas about education. We all do. Even when they, they put a picture of homeschooling up, they show kids seated at a table with mom leaning over them and they're, you know, I, I mean, that's not education. Education is discerning truth. And education, the mark of a good education should be the ability to teach it. That's the mark of a good education is competence. But we've removed competence from our hierarchy. So now we are applauding people not for competence. Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize because he was the first black president. Not for competence. Not because he did anything. It's crazy. Sandra, Lynn, Sam, Sorb. I, I could speak for the next five hours here. You're going to come back I'm again? <laughs> I really want to know how I you feel. Like, look, if you think you can't, yes. If you think you can't, it's because you were taught that you can't. Why would you want your child to be taught that? You want your child to think that he can. So learn how to do it yourself, because you can. Beautiful. That's my message. 
I love it. Love it. Love it. Sam, thanks so much. This has been really, really great. Uh, I could sp I could spend another five hours talking with you because I, I really want to know how you really feel. I'm not getting yeah. that. But, but Aside this from that, great. I don't have a strong opinion about yeah, it. All right. Sam, thanks so much for being with me today. God bless you and keep keep the fight going. It's great. Really great. God bless you too. L'chaim. Thank you. L'chaim. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.